just getting back into the hang of things here. So, um, if you would, we haven't done this in a long time, please stand for our sermon this morning. If you are able for the text, I should say. The reading is from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, verses 18 through chapter 2, verse 5. And the words of God to us this morning. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. To consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Please be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we recognise that it would be folly for us to simply barrel into a portion of Scripture, thinking that somehow with our own eyes and our own understanding, we can apply this to our own hearts. That is folly. We need you to open our eyes to its truth, to what it means within its context, what it means in its argument, but in what it means in the power and the wisdom of God, how it exemplifies Christ and calls us to follow him in new ways. Lord, would you open this word to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have to tell you, I didn't go to a prestigious college myself, but my wife did. 
And uh, I used to get, not so much now, but I used to get occasional uh, amusement by reading her alumni newsletter. And looking uh, only for people that we knew, but for what people generally wrote about their lives years on. I don't know if you've ever done this, it can sometimes be a diversion. <laughs> What's uh, striking about the vast majority of these mini-autobiographies is how much they say about status. What these people have clawed and scrabbled and bled and built for. And how little, really, at the end of the day, they actually have to say about personal growth or relational change or value or community or real life for that matter. Here's an example. I've changed the name just in case you know her. Mary Beth. Mary Beth is an attorney, this is what she wrote, for Skadden Arps in London. Mary got her MBA from NYU School of Business in 1991, her JD from Georgetown in 1994, and has been at Skadden Arps, Slate, Mega and Flom ever since. She has practiced corporate law in Washington DC, Hong Kong and London. She writes, work takes me all over Europe, darling. Okay, I added the darling. <laughs> are like that. That's what people have to say for themselves. This is what I have to say to you, my closest friends, after all of these years of us not seeing each other and being apart since university. Have you seen my resume? I don't know, it's a bit lonely. It's a bit hollow. And it's everywhere. As if all of us that we have to say to justify ourselves with is, is to say Look at where I'm working now. And I have to say, it's not just them. I remember when I first became a pastor in Illinois, I was so proud to have my name on the church letterhead. And I wrote to many of the Christian friends that I'd had in uh, college, um, and uh, many of them I was speaking to, writing to for the first time. And I said, hello, Blank, a uh, long time since you've heard from me. You will have noticed uh, from this letterhead that I'm now a pastor at a church in America. I'm now a clergyman in the USA. <laughs> and that might have been okay if it was about Jesus, but it wasn't. I think 90% of it was just simply about me. And so we join others, don't we, in looking for opportunities to mark our space, to perhaps inflate or at least to embellish our importance. We name drop, we exaggerate, we showcase our trophies, we flaunt our connections. We display our penance and decals, we point to our careers, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, or with pride, I suppose, in one's accomplishments, but if it's not about Christ, then how accurately are we speaking about what has really happened to us, and who we really are? So as we come to this section today, this is a longer section I just read to you, let me quickly quickly catch you up with what Paul has said to the church in Corinth thus far. We began in this way, verses 1 to 9, Paul introduces himself to the Corinthian church by way of this letter, explaining his calling, you remember, and giving thanks for his brothers and sisters in the Greek world, which was an astonishing statement in itself. And then in verses 10 through 17, because they are the church of God in Corinth, Paul has called them away from the competitiveness and the self-promotion of their own culture and to put an end to the divisions among them. And in verses 18 through 31, what we just read, he goes further, showing them that their unity together is necessary 
because of who they are in Christ. They are evidence bearers of his good news. And for that reason, they cannot be divided. It's to send a contradiction about Christ to do so. And this is the idea underlying it all, I think, in these verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Wherever you are now, Paul is telling them, whatever you do, you are Christ's. You belong to Christ, and whatever is true of Christ must be true of you. Why? Well, because you are presenting Christ to a watching world. So, in these verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, Paul is actually modelling for them how to do that. We're going to look briefly at the style of Paul's gospel message, and then some of the content of Paul's gospel message. If you return to the text again, you can find it there in chapter 2. First of all, the style of Paul's gospel message in this first verse. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. It doesn't take much imagination, I think, to understand that in the ancient world they didn't have movies. Their sporting occasions such as they were were every two years. If you were asking someone out on a date, suppose they would be eating Greek food, but you might ask them, right, to go hear one of the great speakers of the day who was coming to an amphitheatre near you. I remember my preaching professor in seminary imagining the starry eyes, the great rhetorical power of the Athenian or the Corinthian, as it were, speakers of Pericles calling the people of Athens to some great civic task or lamenting a national tragedy. Ah, but he added, quoting, some ancient spectator, when Pericles spoke, men wept, but when Demosthenes spoke, people stood up and went silently to war. I think we are probably about as exposed as anyone in our culture to the power of the spoken word. If you've been watching America's Got Talent, you will have noticed that, I think somewhat unusually, a poet just won that competition. And in the ancient world, there would be people who would make their lives speaking to crowds, peddling the newest idea, offering the final answer in philosophy or religion, usually uh, for a price. And the people, those people, would have their groupies, and people would feed them, and people would pay to look after them, and they would pay to hear their rhetorical skill. I was thinking about this, it's curious how your own prejudices can catch up with you, even in something like this. Do you remember uh, Downton Abbey? I suppose it's not been that long ago. Uh, Michelle Dockery, I don't know if that name rings a bell to you, she played Lady Mary Crawley in Downton Abbey, and she had this extremely posh accent. And uh, I heard her interview, Michelle, this is uh, not Lady Mary, and she actually speaks with this Dick Van Dyke, East London, do you know what, Cockney uh, kind of improper accent, which I was always taught as a child to look down on because it took away from any possible class you ever might have. <laughs> and I felt that shift in my respect for her as she opened her mouth. It was extraordinary in terms of my own personal prejudices, I understood that. That disappointment, I think, would have similarly been there for Paul's listeners. And he acknowledges that, doesn't he, here? It's more than simply who, Paul's, what, who Paul was, it was his message, he acknowledges, that was disappointing to the Greeks. It was the testimony of God. 
After all, Paul just wouldn't stop talking about this Jesus. Paul was one of those people we used to laugh at. He was a holy roller, a religious freak, a gospeler. His style for the Greeks was all wrong. His approach was misguided, misinformed. His message just wasn't cool. I was thinking of Mary Beth, the lawyer at Scadden Arms. I think her friends would read what she's written and they would probably be impressed by her story. Honor is due. But what about Paul? We are now, he said, Christ's ambassadors, no longer ambassadors for ourselves. As though God, he said in 2 Corinthians 3, were appealing directly to you through us. Because Paul has made the decision that he will arrive in Corinth in an unspectacular way, being simply about the one thing that has changed his life most. And if you think about that, for us, if Paul is calling us to do that same thing, there's a cost in that. It's unimpressive. It's not cool. It's not a great introduction to people your first meeting or people you haven't seen in a long time. You will likely lose friends as much as gain them by saying it, saying, I'm for Christ. But the question I think Paul is asking is, is will you say it anyway? Because that's who you are now. Second, the content of Paul's gospel message, verses 2 through 5. The content of what Paul preached to the Corinthians, Paul begins, you notice here, with a decision that he made. This presumably happened on his way to Corinth, somewhere perhaps between Athens and Corinth, he made a decision. For I decided, he said, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And then Paul had decided to know nothing, he says, among the Corinthians, except Christ and Christ on a cross. It's been sometimes interpreted to mean that Paul was somehow anti-intellectual, that he had arrived in Corinth determined to offer the Corinthians simply a kind of bare-bones, deliberately dumbed-down kind of gospel. Rather like those uh, down-home stories you'll hear of the, the farmer who was approached by some city slicker and was asked, didn't he know that God was dead as he came out of church? To which the farmer replies, well, that's odd. I was just talking to him a few minutes ago. He didn't even mention that he was sick. <laughs> but there's no indication here that Paul is operating in that kind of way. His letter and his gospel message engages the intellect. It grabs hold of our attention by the collar, really, of our intellect and demands listen, think, respond. Something simple or unintellectual or unthoughtful about what Paul writes in Corinth. Now, Paul made a decision before he got to Corinth because I think the temptation when he reached Corinth would be to not preach the gospel. Not to know Jesus only. Not to mention, not to know him crucified. In the same way, I think that we, before we see somebody that we haven't seen in a long time, perhaps since college, or when we want to present ourselves in the best possible light, we need to make a decision beforehand about what we will say. It doesn't mean, I think, that it has to be a full gospel presentation. But somewhere there, people need to know as they hear you that you belong to Christ. 
There's a true story about Billy Graham, I don't know if you've ever heard this, that he was tempted on several occasions not to preach the gospel, but in some way to pretend to be someone other than he was. When he went to Britain in 1954, the, the press was against him, Parliament was against him, the Church was against him, the Archbishop of Canterbury wrote to him personally to tell him not to come, which I thought was particularly unfriendly. The American ambassador advised strongly against it. But Billy Graham went anyway. He made the decision to go and to preach the gospel in London. And something extraordinary happened for churches that had never really seen any response to the preaching of the gospel, at least since the 1800s. Two million people came to his crusade meetings over three weeks. 38,000 of them made the decision to follow Christ. And what's striking is that he returned a year later, after the success of that first crusade, to speak at Cambridge University. And he wrote this in his diary before he went up to speak to all the students and their professors. He said, I felt boxed in, he said, and inadequate. Apparently he spent an hour with C.S. Lewis before he spoke, which could have hardly helped. <laughs> he then preached to all of these students and to their professors, and for the first three nights, he worked so hard to do this, he, he gave an intellectual argument in a way which was designed to answer the objections of people in the audience. But it wasn't Billy. It wasn't like he preached. And he did this for three nights and there was no response. And on the fourth night, he actually discarded the sermon that he'd written and he just preached as he normally did, as if he were preaching back home in North Carolina. Someone wrote of him that it was as if he had ex accepted the apparent foolishness of the message of Christ crucified, and it was then that the Spirit began working and 500 rebellious, atheistic Cambridge students and their professors came to Christ. It's extraordinary. It was a lesson, he said, in the wisdom and the power of God. Not unlike Paul's decision in Corinth, for I decided, Paul says, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And the decision actually has three parts to it, the source, the, the sense, and the, uh, the power of, of the gospel message that Paul decided to bring them. First, notice the source of his preaching. It would be, as he told them in verse one, the testimony of God, in other words, what God has to say about himself. Strikingly not the experience of Paul testifying to God, not what Paul had to say about God, but what God has said. Second, the sense of his preaching would be, do you notice, not simply the personality of Jesus, the Jesus that people love to admire, the Jesus that we like to present to the world because those parts of him that are cool and applauded, not the controversial bits. The Jesus that is the poster child for this good cause or that. Now the source and the substance of Paul's teaching is going to be deliberately narrow. The sense of it is going to be that the Christ, the Messiah, as Paul preached in Acts 16, sorry, 26, must suffer. And that as Paul preached in Acts 17, must die and be raised from the dead for the sins of all human beings. It was a repugnant idea to the religious, it was an insulting idea to the intellectually sophisticated. Alfred Ayer, I'm not sure you 
heard of him. He was one of the foremost philosophers in Oxford of our own generation. He died in the 90s. He described this doctrine of the cross of Christ as intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. He said that among the great religions of the world, this was the dark spot. This was the thing that people should turn their minds from and should be ashamed of in Western culture. Why? Because I think he knew that the substance of what it was pointing to was not to the stereotypically bad man or bad woman, the usual suspects, but to those who consider themselves morally good and intellectually and culturally woke. And who's that? Well, it's the whole world. It's been a few years. Do you remember that line from uh, the Supertramp song, Crime of the Century? It's quite powerful in the way that the song is designed. It's obviously about a crime. But this is what the writers wrote. Who are these men of lust, greed, and glory? Rip off the masks and let's see. But that's not right. Oh no, what's the story? But there's you and there's me. This is the sense of the gospel. Paul says it to, to them. You kill the author of life. That's what Peter told the crowds in Jerusalem right after Jesus' resurrection. To preach the cross of Christ, John Stott writes in his book, The Cross of Christ, is to preach salvation by God's grace, understood, undeserved favour alone. But such a message, he says, is a stumbling block because it is grievously offensive to human pride. It exposes us, it exposes Paul to rejection, to isolation, to persecution. There is a cost to it. You will feel it as the words come out of your mouth that you are someone who belongs to Christ, that Christ has changed your life, that though many things are important to you, he is the most important to you, and you will feel it, you will sense it as you talk to people, the glazing over of the eyes, the thin lip smile, the turning away. So the central sense of the gospel message is the very stumbling block that if left up to us, we would want to avoid, we would want to leave out. But it needs to be part of our story. And thirdly, the spirit in his preaching. Why did Paul make the decision to preach in this way? Well, because after a period of understandable indecision, you can imagine walking along the road to Corinth, knowing what kind of a place that Corinth was, that in his mind, surely it was one of the most dangerous cities on the planet for any Christian missionary. Wrestling with the preaching of Christ crucified. That seems so humanly counterproductive, so offensive, so endangering. That he was going to turn up at the most lawless, most immoral city on the planet and tell them not only they were wrong, they were at odds. God, and they were his enemies, and the only way for them to be reconciled to him was to accept a message that they would consider nonsense. And wrestling with the preaching of Christ crucified, Paul had to make a decision to depend upon the Spirit by preaching the very things that would take from him, his self-confidence. We don't know what Paul likes. It looked like uh, nobody 
despite the pictures that you might find in some Bibles, has ever found a description exactly of what he looked like. We imagine that he was of short stature. I don't know why he's always depicted as bald. Maybe there is a verse in the Bible that says that. People say that he was bandy-legged, that he spoke with a stutter, who knows. But almost certainly he did not come to Corinth in confidence. He tells us that himself. Notice here when he says that he had determined, he decided to definitely not speak a message that would offer plausible, that is, humanly ex explicable or acceptable reasons why this wisdom should be heard by them. He'd made the decision to not do that. Instead, he would offer an argument that would be intellectually laughable to those who heard it and morally unacceptable. There's a second century piece of graffiti they found of a man with a donkey's head. It was presumably drawn by some Greek mocking a friend who had come to Christ. It's of a donkey's head on a man who's been crucified and someone has scrawled under it in Greek, Alexemenos worships his God. Because to the Greeks this idea was risible, it was laughable. And likewise to the Jew in Corinth, guardians of God's moral law, they would have been outraged to hear this. It was a deeply offensive and I think they would have said hurtful message, it was disloyal, utterly inhuman, disgraceful. And I think perhaps for the first time in a generation we've now understood that we live in such a world. Somebody said this recently that the churches again, as often happens, we are behind the times. We haven't understood because most of our evangelism and the way that we speak about Jesus to other people is because we believe that they imagine that their lives are a mess. It's not the case. People looking at the Christian message believe themselves to have the moral high ground over it, to be morally superior to it, to have a message in fact to say to us. Some of us were outside Planned Parenthood last Sunday and we were quietly praying as we do. There's no loud speakers, there's no angry shouting. We simply have signs that say pray for an end to abortion. And we were doing that when we heard someone yelling at us from a, a truck a block away. And I, I went over to talk to the person just because I couldn't really hear what they were saying. And it was a young woman, uh, not raging, but obviously upset. Don't you believe, she said, that God is a God of love, a God who forgives all sins? And it was curious because I realized at that moment she was actually preaching to me and I was being handed my hat in the moral argument. So apparently agreed was she at what we were standing for, not even what we were saying, because we weren't saying anything. That on the grounds that she believed in a loving God, the God that she had distilled from her knowledge of Christianity, was not the God that we were representing. And I was able to agree with her to an extent. Yes, the Bible says that God loves her. Yes. It says that God will forgive us all our sins in Christ, including, and we have to say this, don't we, whatever sin has been committed. That is the extent of God's love.
But I offer to her this, we love people too much to leave out what is also true for any and for all of us, that that forgiveness is applied to those who seek it in Christ. With a heart that's been broken over the things that we've done which have injured him and sinned against him. And that we make the decision to, to definitely turn to him. To take the deal that's offered to us at the cross, not in pride, but in humility and dependence and some desperation because we need that rescue from him and we accept it with gratitude and we submit to him and we go his way. The mercy of God in Jesus is not some umbrella policy to be potentially applied over whatever we do or have done, a kind of get out of jail free card. No, it has to be taken up. It has to be personally received. We are submitting to a new way of doing things under new ownership. And I didn't say all of this to her, but some of it I did. And if we will not receive it and submit to Christ, then one day we must face God on our own terms. Is that loving? To keep such a message, if that's true as we believe it is, is it loving not to keep that from people? Not to let them know what awaits them? And that's why we're out here, I told her. It is rescue, it is love, it is mercy, and not just for the unborn, but for all of us who are making moral decisions in the face of a holy and loving God. And when we parted, she was less upset. But that really is the world that we're dealing with. A world now that's morally outraged by the Christian gospel. If you'd like to hear more about the ministry of 40 Days for Life, we have a kickoff event here this afternoon. Not just for us, but for the whole city. I think there'll be a lot of representatives from churches here at 4 o'clock. So when Paul talks here about a demonstration of the spirit and the power, I don't believe he's talking actually about miraculous signs and supernatural wonders. There were miracles in the first century work of Jesus and the apostles. There are, I'm convinced, miracles today. But those things are not what Paul is talking about here. Miracles did not demonstrate strikingly the power of the gospel. If you look back at uh, verse 22 and verse 23, Paul offers two alternatives to the preaching of the gospel. Jews demand signs, he says, and Greeks search for wisdom. But in contrast, he says to both, we preach Christ crucified. Where will the speaking of the gospel be shown in power? Not in things that play to human intellectual or cultural pride. Not in miracles that will gratify the religiously minded. No, the demonstration of the spirit and of the power of God will come when you decide, not just preachers, when you decide to tell the message of Jesus faithfully and own up to him as crucified and feel perhaps the rejection of those who may turn from you at such a moment. And you will watch, perhaps, as the impossible thing happens, as it happened at Corinth, that people may be changed and converted to Christ not by the way that you have persuaded them, but by the work of God in their own hearts as the Spirit has used his own message. And I think that is deliberately tied to that decision. And it's deliberately tied to our letting go of our own pride 
and of our own telling a nonsense message to other people. A message that will be, in so many cases, rejected. So practically, I want to leave you with a fact to wrestle with. If you are a Christian, your calling, I think, is not in fact to keep your head down, to make no waves, to stay out of sight, nor is it to try to make your version of Christianity so appealing that people who love you will then love Jesus. I've tried that for years and it simply doesn't work. No, your calling in mind is to be faithful and available, a conduit for what God has to say to the world and what has God to say to the world, or that we preach Christ crucified for them, as we have heard it and received it ourselves. He has given us that message, not so we would keep it to ourselves, but daily pass it on. What is it that changes a human heart? What is it that can remake the world? Ultimately, it's not politics, it's not military force, it's not human eloquence. It's only the message of Christ crucified. That's how morally outrageous the teaching of the church is. That's how humiliating our condition is before God as human beings. That God chose the extreme final option, the only one, if you will, that was left to him. But that's how loving this God is that he would do that for you. That's what you tell your friend. Say, I'm in entirely the same place. Have you get to that place with people? Well, pray. Make the decision. Boldly ask the question about Jesus. Are you a praying person? Do you ever think there's somebody up there who loves you? Have you ever heard the story of Jesus? Would you like to hear it? Would you read it with me? I think it's the most important story you will ever hear. But before you pray or speak personally, as I say, you must decide under the conviction of Scripture that this is what you will say. You will be nervous, you may be rejected and isolated, but whatever the results, it will be the message of God for the glory of God in the wisdom and by the power of God. Lord, you know this is so hard for us. We already feel that the temperature has dropped in the room for the church. We are hardly as cool as we like to think we are. We are not as applauded as we have been in past generations. The time has not yet come, perhaps, where we can say of ourselves, as Paul could say of himself, that he was the scum of the earth. But perhaps that day, if we are honest about you, it's approaching. But we thank you, Lord, that you are the one who speaks through such a message of such a God who would go to such lengths to save such as we, to save such as those that we love, to save those that we take this message to. Lord, help us to be brave. Give us gospel confidence to include the word Jesus in our resume and in what we have to say about ourselves.